I'll be reading today from Malachi 3, 1 through 12. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launder's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Stephanie. Yesterday was quite a, uh, an eventful day. If you are in any way at all in tune with the world, you may have heard of a uh, city in Siberia called Chelyabinsk, which is roughly about uh, 1,000 miles east of Moscow. And um, in the synagogue in in Chelyabinsk, folks were um, praying their morning prayers, and uh, all of a sudden, something streaks across the sky, uh, bursts into fireballs, and brings about a shockwave that explodes windows all over the town. Apparently something like uh, 1,000 people were injured in the city, mostly due to flying glass. And uh, roughly 3,000 buildings were injured. Now, I, I can only imagine being in Chelyabinsk. Frankly, I really don't want to be there. Uh, my father spent uh, a year and a half or so in Siberia so I know it's not exactly uh, a picnic ground. But um, I saw pictures of this meteorite streaking across the sky, and I can only imagine what it, was, what it would be like to be there. 
to see this thing happen, to see the fireball and, and uh, to experience the, um, the shock waves and experience the glass being broken and flying, etc., etc. It was quite, quite the event. At the same time, you may have heard about um, the uh, 2012 DA-14, an asteroid that was also streaking uh, across the sky, but apparently invisibly because it was covered by clouds. Um, this one, instead of being a uh, bus size, was about the size of half a football field. And um, it, it uh, came very close to Earth this time, uh, only uh, 17,000 miles away, which is considered close. Um, it generated a lot of excitement. Thousands of people all over the globe were watching it, or trying to watch it with their telescopes, um, and were very frustrated because it was mostly invisible. And I heard on the news that there was an organization called B612, and if you know a children's story, uh, you would recognize the name. Uh, this foundation was set up to raise funds to send a satellite into space with this massive super telescope to be able to spot uh, asteroids before they would come and be a danger to Earth and to find some kind of a way to deflect the asteroids so that our civilization would not be wiped out by an asteroid. By the way, you, you might be interested to know that the satellite is now being built by Ball Corp in Boulder. Hua. <laughs> um, what really grabbed my attention was the uh, comments expressed by the head of the organization, B612, um, who spoke about a great deal of concern that this asteroid could come, or an asteroid could come, and potentially destroy our civilization as we know it. Uh, one could make a sarcastic comment or two about the civilization as we know it, but uh, in any event, his comment was that uh, any thinking person would want to be involved and engaged and donate money and, and see to it that, uh, that this would be properly taken care of so that asteroids, uh, if they were endangering us, would somehow be deflected enough so that they would not hit planet Earth. That's quite possible, but you know, I'm expecting a different kind of a guest. Um, his name is Yeshua. And this is what I believe the prophet Malachi is speaking about. But you know, it's a little confusing here because it seems like there are several people who are mentioned and, and you, you want to say, okay, I need a scorecard here to be able to tell who is on first and et cetera and, and who is being talked about and so on. So I think we can simplify it by noticing the fact that there are two basic persons who are mentioned here. First of all, in verse 1 of chapter 3, 
the Lord speaking through Malachi saying, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, you have to realize that the me there obviously is referring to God in one form or another. Now, you also need to realize that in Hebrew, the word for messenger and the word for angel are exactly the same word, malach. So you can't always tell what is being referred to unless you step back and see the context. Here, um, it's pretty clear that this is speaking about a messenger, a non-angelic messenger, because in chapter 4, if you have a, a Bible, Hebrew Bible, it, it's all part of the same chapter. But in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is predicting, he says, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So when you put those two items together, that God is sending a messenger and God is sending the prophet Elijah, obviously the messenger that is being mentioned in verse 1 is the prophet Elijah. And secondly, at the end of verse 1, we see, we see another uh, person being introduced. Then suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The, the, the Hebrew word for Lord there is not God, it's Adon, which means master, but it typically refers to, especially when it speaks about special power, and in this case, it refers to the temple. Who else would be the master of the temple in Jerusalem? Obviously God. So you have this master, uh, the Lord, who is going to come to his temple, who apparently also is the messenger of the covenant. So you have one messenger at the beginning of verse 1, and then you have another messenger, messenger of the covenant, who also seems to be God himself. Now I know that seems a little confusing, but I want you to back up a little bit and recognize the fact that in, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, many times you find references to the angel of the Lord the angel of God. And it seems that when you see that reference to the angel of God, somehow it is God presenting himself in visible form so that people can see him and, and recognize him for who he is. Let me give you three examples. First of all, if you remember the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, um, Abraham goes, prepares to kill his son, and there's a voice from heaven being identified by the angel of the Lord calling out to Abram, saying, don't. And then Abram sees this ram in a thicket. He takes the ram, he kills the ram, and uh, Isaac is spared, and the ram is sacrificed. You can just jot down if you would, but in, in, uh, later on in that scenario in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord calls out to him again, saying, excuse me, let, me, let me back up. This is the first time. 
The angel of the Lord calls out to him, saying, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. <clears throat> do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. So the angel of the Lord <clears throat> is speaking to Abraham and saying, you did not withhold Isaac from me, obviously referring to God. Then, of course, we have the, <clears throat> the scene with uh, Moses in, in the burning bush. Chapter 3 of Exodus. <coughs> the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the flames of fire from within the bush. Okay, we get that. Angel of the Lord. Some form of visible expression that Moses sees through the burning bush. We don't really know exactly what, what that looked like other than something that Moses recognizes uh, as the angel of the Lord. And in that same context, that same passage, we're told that the Lord, Adonai, the, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav -Hey, saw that Moses came over to look, and God called to him from within the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. So here we see the angel of the Lord clearly identified with God himself. God somehow presenting himself in a visible form so that Moses could see him like Abraham could somehow hear and understand that the angel of God was God himself. And then finally, and there are other examples, but the third one is Gideon. Now, this is a fascinating story. Um, here you have this guy who's scared of his own shadow, you know, because the bad guys, the... Uh, the, the Ammonites and so on would come every spring and just as you're getting ready to harvest your crop they would come and grab the crops so the Israelites were given over to taking the crops and processing them in, in ways that are hidden so for example he, he took the, uh, the wheat and he was uh, stomping on it threshing it in, in, a, in a wine press, which is basically hidden. Uh, why? Because he wanted to make sure that the wheat that he had was not taken by these uh, invaders. So you can see he's kind of shaking, and the angel of the Lord comes and says to him, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And I can only imagine that Gideon is saying, uh, you've got to be talking to that guy over here, not me. In any event, um, Gideon prepares prepares this food as an offering, and um, and the angel of the Lord touches the offering with the tip of his staff, which means that he basically looked like an average man who was walking around with a walking stick. He touched the tip of his staff, um, and fire flared from the rock and consumed the meat and, and, and the bread. And Gideon steps back and says, Oops, I think I've just had a theophany, a manifestation of God. He said, uh, 
Ah, Lord God, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord God said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. Now this is interesting because a Jewish version of reality, you have two things that appear to be in dynamic tension. Okay, on one hand, God is not seen by mankind. He's too holy. On the other hand, you have a number of these examples throughout Scripture where God obviously presents himself in a f visible form, in a human form, that people can see, and he is called the angel of the Lord, but he's clearly God himself. So whatever Malachi is speaking about, when he speaks about the angel of the covenant, the messenger of the covenant, rather, He's speaking about God appearing in his temple. He's showing up. What would that look like? Malachi speaks about the fact that he will appear suddenly, pitom, surprisingly, unexpectedly. By the way, you find the same kind of expression in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, where we're told that when Messiah comes back, he will appear suddenly, unexpectedly. And by the way, this Hebrew word, pitom, uh, appears 25 times in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. And 24 of those times appear in connection with disaster or judgment. In other words, when God shows up, uh, lots and lots and lots of times what he's coming to do is bring about judgment. Verse 2 of Malachi 3, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? What does that mean? Well, think about it this way. In those days when a king would walk into a room, into the throne room, Anybody with good sense would fall down, prostrate himself in his presence. You know, I, I, I don't know. We don't have really modern equivalents of that unless you have seen the movie The King and I um, or, or the more current version of it where you have the, the king of Siam seated high and, and uh, Miss Anna would come in and she would stand and everybody would strongly exhort her and encourage you to get down like everybody else was. And that's part of what is being said here. When God appears, you don't just come to him and say, what's up, God? But rather you get the fact that often when he comes, it is for the sake of of judgment. Now, judgment is a pretty scary word. Let me just hasten to point out that judgment scripturally doesn't always mean condemnation and punishment and destruction. Judgment begins with sifting and evaluation and separating what is good from what is not good, what is godly from what is ungodly. And so... For us who have entered into a, relation, a relationship with God through the Messiah, those of us who have come to know him through the Messiah, 
God's judgment isn't intimidating and, and scary. Why? Because we know that God is both the righteous judge and He's our loving Heavenly Father, which means that the judgment that He brings is going to be just and fair, and second, second of all, it's going to be designed for our good. It's going to be constructive. And so, yes, we have the, you know, we sometimes are caught up with the uh, notion of the Lord coming and beaming us up, which is something that Scripture talks about. First um, Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead Messiah will rise first. And we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so you have a clear statement. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to take us. And that's a wonderful and a comforting reality. However, sometimes we see it somewhat dreamily, you know, some, somewhat like, like, a, uh, like a fantasy. Life is hard, you know, Messiah is going to show up and beam us up and boom, everything will be hunky-dory. Well, yes and no. Yes, he will come and yes, he will take us. However, part of reality is that um, God's judgment is something that is a reality today. Scripture tells us that God judges 24-7. And he judges and evaluates and sifts those of us who are his. 1 Peter 4.17 It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the good news of God? And yes, God's judgment is awesome but again, remember that if we know that the Lord is a righteous judge we will actually be comforted because we will know that where we have been on target we will be vindicated and where we are off target that will be pointed out to us and we want that, don't we? We want to know where we've been way off base so that we can repent and change and receive God's cleansing and receive God's healing. Yes? So the fact that He judges is a comforting thing for us who have a commitment to follow and obey Him. God's severe judgment that comes for the purpose of destruction is only poured out on the rebellious, those who have had opportunity to to change and turn again and again and again and again. Remember that God held off with Israel for 400 years before He hauled them off into exile. You find in the book of Revelation that God begins to judge the earth and people are so spiritually stupid that instead of getting the message and saying, okay, there's a problem here, God is trying to get our attention, okay, God, we're listening and we will listen and hear and change, people lift their hands and sin defiantly. It's like, God, we really don't care who you are, what you are, 
we will do what we want to do. That's rebellion. And the Word of God tells us that God's judgment on those will be severe. We see that here in Malachi. For those who are rebellious, in verse 5, I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, idolaters, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but who do not fear me. Now, it's not to, to imply that these are necessarily all the big, bad, ugly sins, and then if you're out of that category, the Lord will be nice to you. The point, again, <clears throat> is that God's severe judgment com comes on those who are rebellious, who are not willing to listen, who are not willing to follow, who are not willing to obey. And that those of us who have come to know him through Messiah <clears throat> are confident that and know that we have been saved from the severe judgment that sends people into a godless eternity. Yeshua put it this way, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. This is John 5.24. Again, God's judgment for us who desire to know him, who desire to follow him, is designed to be constructive. Verse 3 of here, this chapter, God will purify the Levites and will refine them like gold and silver. <clears throat> then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former days. You notice that the pictures that are mentioned here, the metaphors, are both designed to be constructive. First of all, um, and James, you know all about that, uh, the, the um, trade of, of metallurgy and, and goldsmithing, uh, if you have a, uh, a pile of gold, you refine it. At least that's the, the old-fashioned way. I don't know if it's still being done. You heat it up and scoop away all the impurities so that you have a better product and you have a product that is uh, more precious. Again, very constructive. The second one, of course, obviously that God's judgment will be like the, uh, like borax, you know, like, like cleansers, uh, launderer's soap. Again, something very, very constructive. And the point is that God wants to take the Levites who are serving him, who are engaged in doing his work in the temple, and he wants to make sure that they're cleansed, that they're not uh, defiled that they're not coming to God's sanctuary wearing clothes that are that are defiled and, and polluted. They have to be cleansed. Why? So that they will bring offerings that are acceptable to the Lord. Hebrew word for acceptable there is very colorful. It it gives you the sense that it's something that is sweet and pleasing to God. 
Now, this is not only applying to the Levites and those of us who are actively involved in serving God from behind the pulpit or um, behind the music stands. To one degree or another, it involves all of us who have made a commitment to follow the Lord. Think about it. That each one of us has been called to represent God in the sphere of environment where we are. We are Levites. We are God's servants. We are God's priests in that we represent the people to God. We intercede for them and, and we represent God to people in that we communicate the word of God and God's will to people as they're willing to, to hear. So all of us, to the extent that we're willing to serve God, are Levites. And by the way, there is no such thing in, in Scripture as a worshiper who is not willing to serve God. Because the Hebrew word for worship, Eved Adonai, also means one who serves God. The notion of worshiping God and, and loving Him and saying, God, forget it, I'm not going to serve you, just doesn't exist. Because the moment you enter into a relationship with Him, the moment you've come to know Him, you've signed on the dotted line that says, God, you have the key to every room in my house. I welcome your rule, your government in my life. And what you, what you say is, is holy and I am willing and eager to learn to follow you and to serve you. That's a no given. It's a no brainer. So all of us are, are Levites in that sense. And God wants to bring about cleansing and purification in our life. Not because he's mean-spirited, but if you also think about the metaphor, the picture in John 15, where Yeshua speaks about the vine, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, the Father prunes every branch that bears fruit. Why? Because he is mean, rotten, and nasty. No, because he wants to make the branch more productive and cut off segments that are non-productive, that are dead wood. And that's what God is committed to doing in your life, in my life. Everybody who names the name of Yeshua, who is willing, committed to following Him, God wants to bring about cleansing and purification. And you can either buck it and fight it and uh, sort of arm wrestle with God, which we all know is stupid, or else we get the fact that God's ways are for our good and that He wants to refine us. Why? So that the dirt would go away and we would have more of Him and we would be cleaner and more and more filled with Him and His goodness. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Verse 6, the Lord does not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. We see that also in, in, in um, <clears throat> Lamentations, where Jeremiah says, Lord, because you are good and merciful, we're not toast. 
You don't nuke us because we are rotten. Rather, you're patient and merciful with us. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. He knows our sin, and yet he loves us. I don't know about you. That boggles my mind. Because human nature being what it is, if you know people, you've been in a relationship with them, and you get to know their ugly side, which we all have to one degree or another, our tendency is to want to say, okay, thank you for showing me your ugly side. Um, Not really interested in getting to know you any further. And you know what the Word of God, especially here in in the prophets, tell us... (coughs) excuse me, that God keeps coming back for more. Let me say that again. God keeps coming back for more with us. Again and again and again. Despite our sin, do you know that you have sin in you? Well, um, I think the truth is most of us have some basic clue what our sins and shortcomings are. If you read the Bible, the Word of God gets in our face <coughs> and steps on our bunions. They challenge us. But you know, there are times when we're absolutely oblivious. We just don't get it. <coughs> For one reason or another, we don't get where we have gone off the mark. And it was like that for the people in Malachi's day. In fact, they're having this <coughs> conversation and, and God is speaking through Malachi and the people of Israel are quoted here saying, how shall we turn? What's wrong with us? I mean... Why do we need to return and repent? What have we done? And, and the Lord is saying, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? That's a very strong statement, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, on one hand, it makes no sense because you really can't rob God. I mean, he has all the resource and resources in the world. The, the earth is his. He has all the gold and silver. You can't really rob him. On the other hand, he has his house, his sanctuary. In Malachi's day, it it was the temple. And um, again and again and again, God had to send prophets to the people and say to them, you are ripping me off. You, you don't seem to care that my house is in shambles and you're going about building your villas and your condos in Vail. <clears throat> we see that, for example, with uh, Zechariah and Haggai who come to speak to, to the people. And the people hear and get it and the temple is built in four years. And then it was out of order. So God has to raise up (coughs) Ezra and Nehemiah to come and challenge the people again. And they do that. 
And, Ezra, and Nehemiah had to do that twice. The people were refusing to take care of God's sanctuary. Now, let me just point out that lack of tithing is always a canary in a coal mine. What do I mean by that? You know, the old days, um, <clears throat> in a coal mine, whenever people were concerned about the mine caving in and, and uh, gases coming up and, and exploding and so on and so forth, they kept the little canaries, the little yellow birds that would be able to uh, spot if there are noxious fumes, and that would give them some kind of a, a heads up. Lack of tithing is just like that. It's an indicator that there are much worse sins that, that take place. And if you read Israel's history, uh, particularly with uh, the prophets, the later prophets, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, and then, then with uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and here in Malachi, you see that lack of tithing was one of uh, a, an ugly bunch of other sins where the people showed that they, they really didn't care about God and His house. Again, God's house, God doesn't need anything from us, but on the other end, He does. Again, it's a Jewish both and. Um, because God's sanctuary requires human involvement and human resources in order for it to, to, per, to flourish. In fact, what the Lord is saying here, because of your decisions, uh, um, your miserliness in holding back your resources, you're under curse. Now, what does that mean? It means that they were experiencing God's judgment. Instead of receiving God's blessing, <clears throat> they were experiencing God's discipline. God was trying to get their attention to bring them to a place where they understood their need to be generous towards God's sanctuary. Just like we saw earlier today, the portion that James read to us, uh, the Torah portion that, that um, Isaac read to us as well. The Lord was looking for people who had generous hearts, who did what they did, not because somebody put a gun to them, but because they were moved with generosity because they were stirred um, to see to it that God's house is properly taken care of. And you see that as well in the New Covenant, the New Testament, that whenever people were generous, you could always draw a, a straight line from that to the power of God in people's lives. Amen. The early chapters of Acts where people were generous and they shared and they brought, <clears throat> the power of God was working decisively and dramatically in people's lives. You see that also in, in, in Macedonia where the, the believers were not wealthy, but they gave, and Scripture says that they first of all gave of themselves. See, that's what God is always looking for. God is looking for the heart. So just to be very clear, this is not a message about giving. Uh, we're not in some kind of a building campaign. Um, as Floyd pointed out, <clears throat> we finished the year in the black. And yes, we need to grow. 
But somehow, God will see to it. And I'm not here to harangue you about your giving. That's God's job. And if you read scripture, and if the Lord isn't speaking to you, I certainly am not going to be able to tell you anything. It has to be God's business in speaking to you. But again, if you are a tither, if you are someone who's committed to giving, to, to tithing, giving 10% to support God's sanctuary, you have already received God's blessing. And you know that in one form or another. And if you've been with us for a while, you consider <clears throat> Yeshua Tzion to be your home, then Scripture says that this is the place where you would tithe to support God's sanctuary. And I know we, we, we don't have a, a steeple and we don't have a cathedral here, but this is God's sanctuary. I don't know if you realize that every Shabbat when you walk in, God is already here. Do you know that? God is already here when you come in on Shabbat. And, and we are coming to celebrate and to worship in His presence. And your giving is not giving to the uh, leadership of Yeshua Tzion. You're giving to God to see to it that His house flourishes. But again, this is not about finances. It's about a passionate heart. A passionate heart to see that God's sanctuary flourishes. It looks differently for each of us. How we go about it. Again, beginning with a heart, a generous heart, and working its way outward. Including finances, including time, including energy. And I don't want to embarrass the folks who are already doing that. The Lord knows your, your labors, Floyd and, Zin, Floyd and Linda, and Linda and James and others. But you have a part. You have a part. You have a part in seeing to it that God's house flourishes. A good place to begin is this week of prayer as we prepare to come and and, and really, really invest in seeking God and, and praying together as a congregational mishpacha for His blessing on us, for His blessing on other uh, within our community who, who need help. We have a bunch of folks, as I mentioned, who are sick and who are unemployed or underemployed. But we want to go much broader, folks. God placed us here so that we would be a light to the community. We want to pray for that, that God would bring about, would touch people's hearts. And specifically, we want to encourage you to pray that God would give you divine appointments, opportunities to share Yeshua wherever you are. All of that reflects a desire to build God's kingdom and build and strengthen God's sanctuary where you are.
And so we've been saying that God is the judge, he's the tester. Now he is giving us an opportunity to test him. And this is a very odd expression because the, the Lord isn't saying, bring the tithes and check me out. Rather, he says, yes, bring the tithes, but would you please test me? Would you please test me? He challenges us to see what would happen if we commit to serving in his kingdom and in the sanctuary? See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. The expression, by the way, floodgates of heaven, comes from the flood, Noah's flood. The Lord is basically saying, give from a generous heart, give you tithes, and give your money and uh, your time and give your energy and then step back and see how I'm going to open the heavens and just empty the goodies in heaven upon your life. Yeshua repeats the same message. Given it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken over, running over. It will be poured into your lap. And here's the principle, folks. For with the measure you, you use, you measure, it will be measured to you. If you have a generous heart, God will see to it that he responds in generosity towards you. And this is not some silly prosperity teaching. You know, you give X amount of dollars and God will give you 3X. Or God is obligated to see to it that you have all the latest techno goodies in the world. No. This is about God's blessing, God's favor in your life. First of all, inside of you, the spiritual goodies, the spiritual blessings, and then working its way out materially as well. The Lord will see to it that you are taken care of. Again, we saw that during the construction of the tabernacle, during the early believers, early followers of Yeshua. Take the challenge that God is throwing at you, that God is offering you. Learn and commit to serving here faithfully, especially in areas that are not especially visible, that are not especially glamorous, such as the setup and breakdown, serving with our kids, serving with the Oneg, and so on. And then see what God does. You will be considered a blessing, is what we're told in, in verse 12 of chapter 3. This is, of course, first of all, applicable to the nation of Israel, and, and secondarily, it applies to us who follow the Lord. Now, perhaps you're sitting here and you're skeptical. You know, we're taught to be skeptical. Um, just want to share with you one example of what that looks like. Yesterday, I got a call on my cell phone telling me that I had just won a free cruise to the Caribbean. Now, it just so happens that yesterday, 
uh, a cruise ship came limping into the port of Mobile, Alabama <laughs> with 4,400 tired, hungry passengers who are without electricity, without food, without air conditioning in the Gulf of Mexico. And by the way, the ship is called Triumph. <laughs> and uh, I gave that message on my cell phone about half a nanosecond and then went click because I had good reason to be skeptical. Do you find yourself skeptical of God? Do you, do you read these kinds of scriptures and you say, Lord, this is a very nice cell phone. Click. I've been through trials. I've been through health issues. I've been, I lost my job. I'm having a hard time paying the bills. I've been in relationship uh, issues with my kids, with my spouse, my friends. Uh, I'm not blessed. And the Lord looks at you and says, I want to bless you. Test me. Prove me. Prove me and see to it that I will indeed bless you. Stop the skeptical nonsense and test me. And yes, you will go through trials. Life is hard sometimes. As we as believers, the Lord promises to us that we will experience trials. Such a deal. But he also promises that somehow through the trials, he will see to it that we're blessed. And we, we can either look at this and say, Lord, um, thank you very much. I will experience all these goodies pie in the sky by and by. Um, not now. And that's where you are today. Let me tell you, you're doing yourself a great disservice. You're ripping yourself off. You're ripping yourself off from the opportunity to welcome God into the picture in your life and see Him at work. And of course, you're not offering God a whole lot of praise and respect and adoration with that kind of an attitude. Yes, folks, we're fellow strugglers when it comes to faith. Lord knows that. We sometimes get it in one area, and then God brings us into another phase, another area where we don't get it, and we're stretched every which way but loose. And yes, we are learning. But the commitment has to be there where we say, yes, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you myself wholeheartedly, my time, my money, my, my energy to serve in your kingdom, to serve in the mishpacha that you have put me in, spiritual family. Because I want to honor you. I want to receive your blessing, your favor. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Would you please stand?
Lord, we uh, stand before you ashamed of our unbelief, of our cynicism, our miserly approach towards you, Lord, that we come and we are only interested in giving you our leftovers. And Lord, we want indeed to prove you and test you, Lord. We want to open our hearts and give of ourselves to you, bring our tithes and offerings, give our time to worship you and to serve you. And we want to step back and see you at work, Lord God. In all the areas that seem to be totally and absolutely intractable, Lord God, we affirm that you're greater than all of those. And we affirm, Lord God, that you are gracious, full of chesed, that you do want to bless us, and that you are at work for the good in our life. And Lord God, I pray for the eyes of faith for all of us to be able to see that and to embrace it. And to embrace, Lord God, your goodness, to embrace your plans and purposes for us, to press forward, Lord God, and to see, Lord, to see you at work. Challenge us, Lord God, today to do just that. To prove you. And we pray, Lord God, that for each one of us, Lord, where we are struggling with unbelief in particular areas, we pray, Lord God, that we would repent of that and commit, Lord God, to depending on you, trusting you, Lord God, patient faith to see you at work. We pray, Lord God, that the word that you have here for us, Lord God, would penetrate deeply into the recesses of our heart and soul, Lord, and that we will learn to apply it. We pray that you would receive the honor and the glory through all of that. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.